The views and opinions expressed by hosts, invited speakers, and callers do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Black Talk Media Project or the Black Talk Radio Network. Dwell among all God's people when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil. When the beast that feeds you stars our father's children. When snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to Peace and welcome to New Abolitionist Radio, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century slavery. Hosted by social activist and spoken word poet Max Parthas with New Abolitionist and Actionist Johanna Naya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is April 13th. 2016. Uh, you uh, you're sounding real staticky, and greetings to you tonight and the listeners. Well, you're coming Please, in. Well, real I'm sorry about that. Is this sounding any better now? Now it does. Okay. All right. Well, today is April 13, 2016. On tonight's broadcast, we'll be covering the organized revolts in Alabama's prisons, the continuing efforts to organize a national prison work strike on September 9th, and a number of other important pieces of information regarding the abolition of legalized slavery in the 21st century. This week's writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Kia Stewart. Kia, who was mistakenly identified as the man who shot Bryant B.J. Craig on a public New Orleans street in broad daylight, on July 31st, 2005, at the time of his arrest, Kia was just 17 years old. April 13, 2015, Judge Darrell Dirk-Bigney ordered that Kia's conviction be vacated and that he be immediately released from custody. Our abolitionist in profile tonight is Alexander Crummel, or Crummel, 1819 to 1898, abolitionist, priest, missionary, scholar, and teacher. Expect all of that and more tonight on New Abolitionist Radio. We invite you to join the conversation by calling us at 1-641-715-3660, extension 549-032-POUND. Just press star six and one to queue up from the conference line. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Scotty? What's up, Johanna? Oh, uh, Johanna is not with us. It's just me. So you start with me for oh, the okay. moment. I saw a message. He was saying he was on his way home, so he would be here. Okay. I thought, I thought well, he was here. Well, tonight we're off. Tonight we're off. How's your week been there, Scotty Reed? Busy, very busy. Um, launched a new um crowdfunding campaign, uh, getting ready to take it to a different level in terms of our uh, China Fund, independent black media in all different types of formats and whatnot. So uh, came out with the Black Radio Stations Matter t-shirt campaign. You know, you get a thank you t-shirt uh, for a donation of at least $25 or more. And um, so, you know, had about 10 people already step up and, and purchase the shirts. Uh, I mean, from when I 
first announced them. So I'm excited about that. Also designing some more stuff and just trying to fund it, man, and just letting people know and building relationships with people by like our regular monthly donors, building a better and deeper relationship with them outside of just sending them the reports, but start sending them just little thank you gifts, you know, in the mail for their funding. Uh, and because, you know, um, most black people are not supporting independent black media, but then there's so little independent black media out there. What you think you're listening to is you think is black radio because you hear black voices coming out the speakers, but, that is not who decides this playlist. That is not who reaps the profits. That is not who picks what advertisement campaign they're going to blast your community with. They, you know, not the Clear Channel owns mostly all of the stations, then CBS, all the big radio. And so um, that's what my week been like, man, and started uh, shipping the first shirts out today. So um, I'm very excited about that. But, oh, I was trying to tell the listeners, you know, tonight will be a good night for open forum. If, you know, you wanted to call in and share your story, we've had people call in, uh, especially former prisoners and what have you. We want to hear from you. And so tonight would be a good night. We didn't pick a whole bunch of stories or anything like this or like that. Um, you know, we have been very busy. Uh, Johannes joining us uh, here. Uh, just coming home from work, so y'all. So tonight will be a good night to open forum uh, for those that want to share. But I definitely got stories I want to share. I want to share some of that audio clip that you shared with me on um, in, in a message um, about the uh, what's the the uh, prison riots down there. It's not really them, but an outside organization. I think it's called Unicorn Riot or something like that. That's supporting. And organizing on the outside, but also talking about uh, the prisoners, the ones who are at most jeopardy, who's in, being impacted the most by slavery. Um, you know, uh, definitely he was on point. So I want to listen, a lot of listeners to hear that as well. So it's open forum, you know, tonight. But of course, like Max announced, we got uh, those uh, uh, underground railroad riders and. Uh -huh. uh, you know, in our abolitionist. Did you mention an abolitionist in profile as well? Yes, we have an abolitionist in profile. Okay. Hey, Johan, welcome in, bro. What's happening, Johan? Welcome home, brother. Peace, peace. Good to be here. Peace to the abolitionist. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, like you said, Scotty, we all kind of running around and just trying to do what we can, man. So definitely people that listen in, you know, call in and share your opinion, share your thoughts on what's going on. Uh, in your own local area, because there's so much going on all over the country between the presidential races and the uh, way that the uh, mass incarceration, the modern slavery uh, issue has affected all those, you know, political races. We got uh, the uh, uh, work stoppages and, and, you know, slave revolts ultimately going on and uh, planning to be going on in several uh, uh, different prisons across the country. So state to state, there's several places that are affected by this. I mean, there's just so many news stories of shootings, police deadly, you know, murdering unarmed, innocent people. I mean, it, it's like it doesn't even get to, the, to be in the headlines anymore. So if you're local to any of these news stories, you know, definitely call in and share with us your local perspective on what's going on. I've had a busy week myself. You know, I had a conversation on air with Matt Fogg, who was a former, former uh, deputy director for the DEA. 
there's a weird echo. But anyway, yeah, he's, he's a former director for the DEA, and I got to speak with him uh, via uh, Janice B.J. Graham and her program uh, that came on last week. And during the broadcast and our conversation, Matt Fogg, who is now running for senator, became a new abolitionist. All these years as a whistleblower and as a person who knows the truth because he was there doing it. I mean, this is the guy who was organizing the arrests of, uh, you know, the, the house arrests, uh, going and sending the DA, DEA in the people's homes and just picking them up left and right. After all, knowing all of this, he had always been moving towards reform simply because he was not aware that there was an abolitionist movement anymore. It just never crossed his mind like many others. And I managed to put that into his head. And right there on the spot, while running for senator, he became an abolitionist. That's what's up right there. Just that simple. Like you always say, like it's always said, just got to change your mind. You know, all that he knew. And all he had done and everything he saw and all those times he was speaking, see, this is why I don't feel bad, so to speak, about kind of coming down on people when they're in the public eye. And I don't want to even say coming down. Like, I'm not scandalizing anybody's name or trying to call nobody out or nothing like that. But if we bring attention to uh, certain groups or individuals that are in the forefront or are talking heads or getting a lot of airtime on cable news networks or what have you, it's going to be frustrating to an extent when a person is not continuing to evolve and mature and come to the knowledge of the truth, and they're the one that's being seen as being an expert on, you know, a particular subject. So seeing Brother Matthew Fogg for all of the years, you know, speaking about how his, his commanders told him to stand down, you know, when he was discussing uh, going into white neighborhoods and enforcing the drug laws as, as emphatically as they was doing in the hood everywhere. You know, he says straight out, we know that there's more drugs out in these areas than it is here. We're going in with battering. I think he said they used to call him Batman because he'd come in, you yep. know, like a crime fighter or whatever. And uh, when they, when he suggested, well, why aren't we going over to these areas where we know it's drugs, you know, whatever, too, they told him, no, nah, man, if we go in kicking in them people's doors, somebody is going to get a call, you know, to our bosses. Somebody is connected to our bosses and the decision makers over us, and they're going to shut us down. So if you want your overtime and you want your good pay and you want to, you know, have this job, you'll just keep going in here and, and feeding the slave trade ultimately. So kudos to him. Welcome aboard. Good to see he's he's come around in his thinking and can see the whole picture in his slavery like it like it really is. So I love that. Yes, indeed. And also uh, updated news, one of our abolitionist um, politicians who was running for mayor here in Eastover, Paulette Cunningham, uh, lost her uh, her fight to win the mayorship uh, yesterday by just a few votes. But she almost made it. And uh, much uh, a shout-out to her for running a strong campaign and standing on principles. Um, going back to Matthew Fogg, I interviewed him back in 2007, my first year of digital radio broadcasting. And I, even back then, I wouldn't have considered myself an abolitionist because uh, back then I didn't even know or recognize the 13th Amendment. Probably hadn't even read the 13th Amendment at that point. I don't think I read it till 2008. And so anyway, I had, but I had interviewed him about the drug war and what have you. And I have always described it in terms of slavery, but... I didn't really recognize whether it ain't kind of like slavery. It ain't like slavery. It is slavery. 
So he right. does, he would be in the mass incarceration camp, but um, so what did he do to now that we can call him an abolitionist? Because he's always been trying to shut down the drug war. Right. 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 He, he's been in reform. Uh, reform, shut down the drug war, as you said, one of the things, and also reform the police department, DEA, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, I talk to a lot of people and watch them become abolitionists when that moment clicks, and I know what it sounds like and what it looks like. And I heard it with, it with him when he was talking. You could hear the enthusiasm in his voice as it all made sense suddenly. When I explained to him that if you're a reformer, then you're going under the assumption that this is a great big mistake made over the course of time that can be fixed. Just people made uh, bad judgment calls, and they didn't have forward thinking, and they didn't realize it would end up this way. That's what you're going on if you're a reformist. If you're an abolitionist, you believe that this is no mistake at all, that it was created on purpose to be this way, and it's functioning as it's supposed to function, which is a system of slavery. And as such, being slavery is a crime, and a crime against humanity cannot be reformed. It must be abolished. So, you know, once he realized that, you could hear it click in his voice, and uh, he just became very enthusiastic. He said, now that you say it like that, I understand. I am an abolitionist. That's what's up. That's what's up there for the for the birthing. You saw the change in the, in his mind, and so that's really what you're looking for out of people. You know, when you engage them on this subject, is is to just understand that you can process new information. It's okay, you know, even if it's something you heard before and it just didn't click for you. It's okay to process the information and finally get the right combination to unlock, you know, unlock that lock and be like, oh, okay, now it makes sense. It is slavery. Okay. <laughs> Unlock the secrets of the devil and find out what I want to give a shout out also to the New Jersey decarcerator who recently uh, are about to, they just sent me the proof of it. They're about to publish New Jersey is Ferguson and the New Jersey decarcerator. I'm very proud yeah. of that as a citizen, as, as a native of New Jersey, born and raised in Patterson, New Jersey. So for it to come home like that, my message here from South Carolina, it makes me feel really good. And they also interviewed Sam in the New Jersey uh, decarcerator. And the last time I saw uh, the name F-A-M in capital letters as an acronym, uh, interviewed in the New Jersey newspaper, that was my kids, who were the first hip-hop uh, family in the history of hip-hop music. And they were called Fan F A M. So that that kind of brought me back to it. It brought a smile on my face. You know, well, we helped introduce them to Fan, the, the Alabama movement. So to see New Jersey now working with Alabama because uh, we helped bring them together is a wonderful thing. That's what's up. It all coming around full circle. I see you came out with some shirts too as well, uh, Johanna. America is Ferguson. Yeah, you know, we've been uh we've we've all had, you know, this discussion going on for so long and it's just like you said, it's open the program. We just all got so much going on. I finally just locked myself down to, to sit down and finish putting it together to uh to get it out there. So yeah, the Ferguson is America T shirts are available. It's a Teespring campaign, so we gotta get uh fifty sold and then all fifty will be printed and shipped out. Uh, the links, uh, I will continue to share the links out on my personal page, New Abolitionist Radio. I mean, you know, through all of our 
places where you can find us. So, you know, honestly, people, you got enough to support Black Talk Radio Network T-shirts to support the new abolitionists. I mean, you got enough. I don't even listen to people no more with that playing broke stuff, man. Come on. You, well, you, you, know, you got it. <laughs> I did some research recently just to try to understand where our dollars were. Uh, you know, I've been hearing about all of this uh, American dream and how so many black people are doing well. And then, and I asked the question, well, how many of us are actually middle class? You know, because we don't often hear that number. And in my research, I came up with some very surprising numbers. Um, approximately 15 million of the 45.7 million uh, African Americans here in the United States live in poverty. 15 million of 45.7 million in poverty. 18 million are in middle class. Uh, slightly 2 million have assets totaling $350,000 in net worth. And only 4,000 black people in America have assets over a million dollars. We got two billionaires. Four thousand. Only four thousand out of a nation of three hundred and thirty million people, of forty-five point seven million black people, only four million of them have assets over a million dollars. Only four thousand of them. Yeah. Wow. That's that's that ain't enough to to fill a, a phone book. It ain't enough. And when you start talking about 15 million in poverty, dude, if we were an independent nation, we would have to overthrow the government with a number like that. If black America was just a nation by itself and of 45.7 million, 15 million were in poverty, that would be worthy of a revolution. But this is the thing, though, about money, man, is, is people – use it on what they want to use it on. And we're not getting relief from whatever we've been using it on. So, I mean, I think we can all agree that, you know, as, as a race, uh, as a, as a social class, as far as the poor and the, you know, the different classes or whatever, I mean, whatever way you want to qualify or quantify, there has been no victories, like none. You coming straight out of the first form of incarceration in this country, plantation slavery, and indentured servitude or what have you, that's incarceration at its roots. And then you see it morph into, you know, these different forms, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same purpose. It's still the same uh, 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 costs on the society overall. And no matter what people have invested in or believed in or voted for or done, the one thing we have not done since the UNIA, when uh, Garvey had a, had a million folks contributing and, and trying to do something with, uh, with, with creating a financial base to become politically, uh, uh, have some political leverage and have some business leverage, which is really kind of the same thing. And since then, before then and since then, it's nothing. All this legislation, all these talking heads voted in the spots, all these people to get, you know, featured jobs and can be newscasters and can be whatever, you know, all this equality or whatever, but we haven't made any moves at all. That's why we got 4,000, you know, this only at the million place. So I say, people, you got $25, buy one of these shirts or both. Honestly, you got it. I There's 18 am. million in the middle class who can afford it. Let them come on in right. and buy it, man. We just trying I'm to sure. sell 50. <laughs> <laughs> just, we just trying to sell about a thousand or two thousand, something like that. But I tell you, man, it surprised me also with those numbers that I found out. We have far more people in prisons and jails than we do as millionaires. That's for sure. We got just in the black community alone, 
four million a year go through jails, just in the black community alone. A million are in prison, and a million are on parole or probation. That's big numbers when you're only talking about 47 million total. Right. That's a huge chunk, a huge piece of the population, a huge piece of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so did we decide how we're going to break into, uh, into the stories or where we. Yeah. Let's, let's pop it off first uh, with some news from Alabama. Let's, you know, we want to keep talking about what's going on in Alabama because uh, you know, they've had their slave revolts out there. They're dealing with 200% occupancy in their prisons, which is far beyond hum- inhumane. They're literally being worked to death, making commercial goods and providing services for companies like McDonald's, the fast food franchise. And now, after all of this uprising and all of these demands for to be treated like human beings, Alabama decides that they need $800 million to build four new prisons. So that's their answer, to get another big chunk of money for themselves, $800 million. The idea that you got too damn many people in prison who don't deserve to be there and need to be released never even crosses their mind. In their minds and their hearts, it's always about how can we get paid off of this, continue as is, and even increase it further. Well, this story came out of uh, AL.com News, and it says, Governor Robert Bentley's plan to build four state prisons with an $800 million bond issued past the Alabama Senate. The plan, initiated by Bentley and Department of Corrections Commission Jeff Dunn, includes closing most of the existing prisons. Bentley and Dunn said it is the best way to resolve the overcrowded and understaffed conditions that have plagued state prisons for decades. They say the state can pay off the debt with the money it can save by replacing aged prisons with new ones, with modern, uniform designs. They also say the new prisoners will, new prisons will allow more vocational training and other programs to reduce recidivism. Efforts that they say take a backseat to security concerns now. The governor issued a statement tonight praising the Senate for clearing a critical hurdle in efforts to fix the state's prisons. The passage of this bill will help reduce overcrowding and will provide safer conditions for corrections officers as well as inmates within the facilities. New facilities will also create greater opportunities to reduce the risk of recidivism, Bentley said. Some senators objected strongly to tonight's decision by Senate Republican supermajority to cut off debate on the bill. What is the rush in terms of getting this bond issued out there without having a thorough discussion and a thorough understanding, said Senator Quentin Ross, Democrat from Montgomery. Senator Paul Samper, Republican from Huntsville, also said the bill was wrongly rushed through. Samper said there were questions he would not have a chance to ask. And Senate Majority Leader Craig uh, Greig, Republican from Jasper, said there were plenty of discussions on the bill. Apparently, people want to talk about this more, and I don't blame them, because we're talking about a state that has a prison called Tutwiler's Women's Prison, for, where for the past decade or so, these women have been habitually and institutionally molested and raped by guards who have admitted that they've been doing it and have yet to been prosecuted. And we're talking about 50% of the guards accused admitted to it, and they are still employed 
in the same prison with these same women every single day. We're also talking about, again, 200% capacity, the exploitation of free labor, the abuse by guards, uh, and the mass incarceration aspect that, of, of course, exists in a state like Alabama, who is the very last to uh, finally end convict leasing in 1928. Looks like they're trying to go right back where they've always been. Hmm. Well, why leave? It's more money flowing to them. You know, I mean, yeah, it would be, uh, man, I can't even believe I'm, I don't have any other way of saying this but to say it. I mean, yes, it, it would be an improvement to go from, uh, you know, 100-year-old facilities to something that is new and, uh, you know, not dilapidated with no running water and no plumbing and no, you know, all this kind of stuff that we've reported on that goes on in these prisons, Mississippi, Alabama, all, you know, really all of them. But these are two places that have really been highlighted for just a straight-up inhumane conditions. Like, you just can't even imagine people living inside these kind of facilities. So, yeah, that would be great to have new facilities built or what have you. But at the end of the day, you know, we're talking about a million and a half people that need to not uh, be housed in those places in the first place for nonviolent drug-related offenses. And we're seeing decriminalization of, of the same drugs in other states and in other capacities that are still sending people to these prisons, you know, that they're talking about spending another $800 million to build new places to put them. So, I mean, where is, where is, the, where is the, the line in the sand? I mean, are we really looking at decarcerate or decriminalizing and changing what we're doing in this country? Are we really looking at these reforms that they bring about? Or are we looking at the same future that we're, that we're living in right now where we put a billion dollars into building some new prisons and it's going to be the same status quo? You know, there's another uh, voice coming out about this from The Intercept. And I, I want to read a quote from that uh, article as well so you can have the two sides of this. It says, prisoners and advocates who have denounced abuses and mismanagement in the state's prison for years condemned the plan for new prisons and said the administrators, not crumbling buildings, were to blame for turning Alabama's prisons into a dangerous tinderbox. The state correction system is operating at nearly 200% capacity and is the most overcrowded in the country. The prison crisis in Alabama made headlines in March when riots broke out twice in four days at the home and maximum security facility in Atmore, where inmates stabbed the guard and the warden and then proceeded to post video of the rebellion on Facebook. We have people being killed, sexually assaulted, raped, stabbed on a daily basis at St. Clair, Holman, and multiple facilities. It's a system-wide problem, says Charlotte Morrison, a senior attorney at the Equal Justice Initiative, which represents Alabama's prisoners. The crisis with the prisoners has to do with culture and management. It's not something that can be solved by just building new prisons. There are structural problems, but the principal issue isn't being dealt with by this new bill. Hmm. Well, there you have it. So it's not just us saying these sorts of things. I mean, people that have information and, and have studied the situation and who have, uh, have something to lose, you know, by turning a blind eye, um, you know, the, the truth is, is pretty clear to us across the board. So, I mean, we just got to decide what side are we on. Are we really for abolition of slavery? And in this country, is that what we're moving to do? Are we moving to abolish 21st century slavery? 
or are we going to let a $1 billion, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like that's like a rock in your shoe or something. You're just going to try to act like you don't notice that and just keep walking. That's a billion dollars in a state that's broke as hell. You can't just come up with a billion dollars to say you're just going to go build new prisons and don't even sneeze at the idea of decriminalizing so many of these things that have been put on the books to throw more people in there. How about you reduce your need for prisons? Prove that you're going to reduce the need for so much incarceration in the first place, and then the people will meet you halfway and give you, we'll give you $200 million to build a, a rec center. How about that? <laughs> you say you show us how you don't need to put another 10,000 people through the system next year to generate your billions of dollars that you generate off of people from municipal fines and tickets and all kind of, you know, debt collection and everything else you got going on. Show us how you're going to cut back on that, and then we'll allow you to take a couple hundred million to build some new rec centers and education centers. Word, man. Exactly. Well, we're coming up on our first break in about another minute. Uh, probably just go ahead and take it after this statement here. When we come back, we're going to open up our phones. If you want to make a call, just uh, feel free to call in. Call in. If you're already on the line, just press star 6 or 1 to queue up. And if you have a question or a comment, you're listening to New Abolitionist Radio. With Max Parthas, Scott Reed, and Johanna Nalaya on the blacktalkradionetwork.com. And we want you to understand that Black Radio Matters. We'll be right back after these messages. Scotty? You might have stepped away, Max. We might as well keep rolling with it. I don't know no, if you okay. saw. I don't know if you saw um, this uh, link that I put into the planning page uh, from Courthouse News Service. We're talking about Arizona prisons. Uh, break it down for us, brother. I'll pull it up and look at it while you're talking. All right, we're kind of going with a free-flowing format tonight, and this is one I saw just today, and I uh, really wanted to get this in because you know we were following Arizona last year when the ACLU and this people. This all a connected narrative. So when we are happy about, you know, the ACLU um, getting a settlement of some sort or another as they've done at various prisons and with state, you know, agencies or what have you for the abuses and deaths of people and all of this. It's like a half victory. Yeah, they got it to be known in the news that they admitted there was something that they maybe did wrong. But like in the Arizona case, if you remember from last year, they never admitted to any wrongdoing. That was a part of their terms. They had, they had it in their terms of their conditions of the agreement with ACLU that they never admitted that they did anything wrong, even though it was something like 60-something people died in custody in Arizona prisons. Well, they had the governor race last year. Governor Ducey came in. Uh, first thing he did was cut education funding and put it into the prisons. Because, yes, you had on the surface the ACLU got a settlement out of them, but they're going to get that money back. These slavers are not just going to let the money just evaporate and go into some activist group's hands. First thing he did was pull the money out of the schools, the Arizona universities and colleges, the whole network of higher education systems in the state got together, and they decided to offer the first uh, freshman classes, freshman courses are free in all of the state universities and colleges or whatever throughout the state of Arizona because they still needed to bring people in and there was no more funding available to, to help people get into school. So I'm telling all of this to say this is what we're dealing with on like when we talk about systems 
of oppression. I'm not mad at one individual or telling you to go out and attack some person or it's not black and white or any of these things that are easy for people to try to misconstrue what we're discussing. We're talking about systems that are in place, institutions that are in place, the governor handling finances that is, that is financing slavery, helping slavery recoup from some money they lost in a settlement that they were found guilty of doing people wrong in a court of law. So now we have, coming all of this full circle, a year after an agreement was supposed to improve health care in Arizona prisons, doctors described an understaffed system in which an inmate died with infected lesions swarmed by flies, a man who ate his own feces and was never seen by a psychiatrist, and a woman who swallowed razor blades while allegedly under constant watch. The two physician experts on Monday filed declarations detailing the Arizona Department of Corrections' alleged lack of progress in implementing court-ordered reforms to its health care system. Also, Monday, plaintiffs in the class action, uh, action suit alleging unconstitutional treatment in the state's prisons filed a motion to enforce the stipulated agreement approved by a federal judge in February of 2015. Inadequate health care in Arizona prisons still results in needless deaths from treatable diseases and preventable suicides by inmates who are not properly monitored, according to the experts' reports. The biggest problem is a chronic, chronic shortage of qualified doctors and nurses, according to the statements from Dr. Pablo Stewart, a clinical professor at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and Todd Wilcox, a doctor uh, president of the American College of Correctional Physicians. Both doctors in Arizona prisons in late 2015 interviewing inmates and staff and reviewing patient records in their role as paid experts under the settlement agreement in Parsons v. Ryan. So uh, is, we got the music up. We're going to go ahead and take a break. we we'll catch us on the other uh, side. Guys, can you all hear me? I, yeah, I we hear you. Hear you now. Y'all can hear me, but mm -hmm. I we can have hear lost uh, my audio. Uh, please continue with the program. Okay. As it is recording, sorry to interrupt what y'all were speaking about, but I need to work this out. Okay, we got it, we got it. So, uh, as I was saying, though, these doctors, so they, they've been standing in, you know, still saying that nothing has changed. It said it's readily apparent that the ADC has failed to comply with a number of critically important mental health performance measures. This failure has already harmed a number of ADC prisoners, and it creates a substantial risk of serious future harm to others. A recurrent theme in Stewart's review of mental health care in Arizona prisons since 2012 has been that patients are not being seen by a psychiatrist as required by their clinical condition and by the performance measures. For example, in 10 full days that I've been inspecting mental health care in seven ADC prisons, I do not believe that I have ever seen a psychiatrist, he wrote. This is extraordinary and completely unprecedented in my professional experience. <laughs> Medical and mental health staffing levels are below the national standards, the experts also found. The ADC provides seven psychiatrists and 11 mental health nurse practitioners for over 35,000 prisoners. That is a ratio of 1,800 to 1. A similar prison health system in Colorado has a ratio of about 531 to 1. Stewart found that since April of 2015, no more than 52% of psychologist physicians and 49% of mental health nurse practitioner positions have even been filled. So they just got vacancies, even though the settlement says that they have to fill these, these jobs. When you look at their own records, which show that for the last year, they have never had more than 60% of their psychologist positions ever full. They've never had more than 50% of their mental health nurse practitioner positions full. When you see a problem going on for that long and not getting any better, it suggests that perhaps someone isn't trying very hard. He think this is a problem that 
it's faced, and most of, most of them have managed to overcome it in various ways. One obvious way is that you pay people more money. If you're not going to get quality applicants for what you're paying, you need to raise the salary. You make the position attractive in other ways with flexible schedules. This isn't rocket science, and I think if they were properly motivated, they would find ways to fill these positions. So there's still quite a bit more in the story. I'll make sure the link is on the page. But, uh, Max, what's, what's your thoughts on, on this so far? Um, I'll be honest with you, brother, I wasn't following you as well as I should have just been because I was pulling up a couple of, of uh, articles on this slow-ass computer of mine. So I I'll uh, just hold back for this moment. Well, it's just basically, I mean, I know what you and Scotty both would, would say because it's the first thing we talk about and the first thing we talked about when this settlement came out last year. There's no one going to jail behind this. Right. So there is no motivation. How can you be found guilty of constitutional crimes and nobody goes to jail? How can you be found guilty of systemic issues that are causing people, costing people their lives? We're not talking about people, somebody had a boo-boo and they didn't have a Band-Aid for it. We're talking about people that are dying in custody by the dozens, and these are preventable losses. And the ACLU has already won a federal judgment against the state prison system, and there's still no changes. A year later, they ain't changed a damn thing. Man, it just gets worse and worse, and we're out here trying to make it better and better. I was speaking along these lines just recently, and I said that trying to end legalized modern slavery through our justice system without holding anyone accountable for crimes against humanity and or treason is like trying to end a serial killer's spree of murder without ever arresting him. Asking nicely isn't working anymore. Right, right. And this you is also about it. Right. And this is one of our strongest points of leverage in the abolitionist argument. We've got the text of the 13th Amendment, which says what it says, and everybody knows what it says. Slavery is abolished except for when you can convict someone of a crime. Okay, so all the people that you convict of crimes that you want to go to prison anyway, not the cops. No cops that are convicted of crimes need to go to jail. But for all of us regular citizens, you're going into the jail and into the prison system. So our strong point of leverage here being that this is what reform does. These settlements are a part of reform. The ACLU builds almost their entire game plan. They're, all of their media propaganda, their whole name is known for, they're about reform. You cannot reform slavery. You just simply cannot reform slavery. You cannot go out into the field and give the slaves 20 cents more an hour, and you reformed it. You fixed the problem. No, they're still slaves. Yeah. And this is what happens. There's a lot of confusion where people start taking these subcompartments as the main issue uh, these, and addressing them as the answer. Like, you know, I've been having some kind of a, I've been having a little confusion with prison abolitionists, which is what our sister um, Angela Davis is, a prison abolitionist. And I, for me, it's a very confusing thing. It's, I like to put myself in the position of the abolitionists of the 1800s, for example, whenever I'm considering something. And I would think to myself, well, did they have a plantation abolitionist movement during the 1800s? No, because they know that shutting down plantations would not have shut down slavery. They would have just found a new way 
to keep and work and use their slaves. So, you know, focusing on just one aspect and thinking if you take this piece of the puzzle out, the whole puzzle is not going to be able to be seen anymore, in my opinion, is not the way to go. Um, slavery abolition covers all of that. Prison abolition, it covers the freedom of men and women who have unjustly lost their freedom. It, it covers every social aspect you can imagine in the fight for slavery abolition, but it requires something. And it requires that you admit, accept, and acknowledge that this is a crime against humanity, that it is literally slavery. You can't keep calling it slavery and not acting like it's slavery. And again, as you just said, I mean, even within slavery and within the prisons and within these different levels, like you said, these subcontexts of the same, you know, the bigger problem, we have the same issue within the activist side of it, the response to it. And this is why we bang the drum for abolitionism when you hear and when you see groups that are being, you know, popping up and being promoted and moving forward and getting the microphone handed to them and getting a platform and showing up on the evening news and having, you know, re representatives go in and get their heads handed to them by a host of news shows because they're, they're ill-prepared and don't know what their agenda really is or what they're really talking about when they're catching candidates behind uh, behind the scenes and catching them on the spot and don't have a death blow to, to you know, to hit them with. I mean, it's like it's it's chaos. Come in under the abolitionist umbrella. We got everything covered. You mean like the you know, brother uh, who hit Hillary Clinton, uh, who had gotten off a of death row, and you know, uh, to be the well, monster. And she he's is. right. He's an abolitionist too. So there you well, have it. <laughs> you got a brother that had the right information. I know we don't talk a lot about the death penalty on this program, but you know that's all part of slavery too. You know what right. I'm saying? But I do think we should, you know, start focusing a little bit more on that abolitionist side because people's lives are literally, you know, on the line and the, and the uh, clock is ticking. And, and um, so, um, yeah, he, he showed her to be the monster that she is, man. How you can look that man in his eye after he didn't told you he sat, you know, I think he was a young man, real young man, uh, when he got, you know. Yeah, he was like 17. Yeah, right. wrongly convicted, cleared by DNA, and then we add in the fact the Innocence Project and how many hundreds have they reached a thousand yet that they have gotten off a of death row and cleared people? I know it's usually about a hundred or so, maybe hundred a year. I, I, I'm not sure on the statistics, but if it was just only one, if it was just him, right? right. Well, you look that man in his eye and say, "I still support." death penalty in cases of terrorism. So what, does that mean that she's going to set up a guillotine down there at Guantanamo Bay where you also have people who have been uh, uh, detained, uh, afforded no due, just, no due process rights under military tribunals? And you know what I'm saying, man? So, I mean, is that where we're going now? Hillary Clinton is executing those prisoners instead of just torturing them through force feeding them and, uh, and, you know, sexual humiliation and other and religious, you know, sacramental uh, dec uh, desecration. So, uh, yeah, man, we do got to hit them hard. But Max was talking, you know, about abolishing prison. See, because I don't know, man, what do we do with rapists and, and child molesters and those who commit murder, man? Because I'm going to be honest with you, the man that killed my uncle, one of my uncles, you know, 
Uh, he would be in a box right now if he wasn't in the jail, if he wasn't in prisons. Right. Now, so because we were going, we were we actually was hunting him down. I was just a teenager, you know, uh, but he got convicted and he's been in prison ever since for the past what? All going, man, forty plus years. You know what I'm saying? But my that personal, you know, family tragedy aside, I still think in prison, you know, should be treated humanely, and they should yeah. be paid a fair wage because he left some kids behind out here. You right. know what I'm saying? So he should be paying fifteen dollars an hour. Let's get Bernie Sanders on record to say fifteen dollars an hour for the prisoners that's working instead of a dollar a day. You know, uh, I I wouldn't even question Hillary Clinton except to further expose her, like the brother did on the on the um on the death penalty side. But you know, we really need to be pushing that as abolitionists. That is certainly part of abolition. Abolition. And, and well, we can rid uh, of slavery. We but do speak Matt, on it pretty often here with our, uh, our riders of the 21st Century Underground yeah, Railroad. We spoke right, about yeah. a many a men who have come off of death row and told their stories. But we but we Matt, can definitely amp it up even more. But I want to read. I want to uh, play this clip that you had sent me uh, of that young man who was speaking at a uh, in Minneapolis. Um, and they were talking about abolition now. So the abolitionist message is, is spreading, you know, more and more and more since we came on air. Of course, people before us were spreading the abolitionist message. You know, you mentioned Angela Davis lately. But this guy, you know, I, I'm listening to what he has to say, and then I'm reading this article also, um, not literally right now, and but I didn't get to finish it. I read halfway but an article on how Cuban uh, Cuban prisons are, you know, off of you know, based off a story some journalists did who were given access and just a big difference and how they were saying those you know uh, prisoners human rights were intact and they all and they had long ago did away with prison for juveniles, you know, and, and I think it was brought up recently, like you know that Clinton crime bill. Uh, now you can charge 13-year-olds as an adult, you know, and nobody's talking about abolishing the Clinton crime bill or, or these aspects of it. So, but if y'all don't mind, I want to go ahead and play that clip because this brother, yeah. you know, he's dropping some if knowledge. I, if I might just add to it, Scotty, that that, that is uh, people who were here on the program with us that are working with the organization of the prison strikes in Texas and are now getting involved in the national prison strike movement, Sister Stephanie Brown, for instance. So some of their conversation was directly influenced by us. So they even give us a shout-out, as a matter of fact. This is uh, Unicorn Riot. I I didn't hear him, but it's an hour long. I just want to play his portion. But uh, let's see if I can get to it. Here we go. My bad. I'm trying, man. <laughs> so I think the abolitionist versus prison reform is that myself as a former prisoner, like my experience and what I picked up from that is that, like, I want to get it all. Excuse me, I want to get it all. Because they're sharing important information here, so bear with me. All right, here we go. Are you good with your 
um, joining us. I'm going to introduce um, our first speaker, and then we'll have time for Q&A at the end of the, um, after all of our speakers um, speak. So Nick is a member of IWOC, and he's also the co-chair for IWOC um, nationally, and he'll be um, speaking about the difference between abolition and reform, and um, going more into some of the recent actions that have happened um, across the country. Thank you. All right, what's up, everybody? Um, <laughs> so just to give a brief history of IWOC, um, this project started as, you can't hear? This project started as a way to support, we kind of threw together a committee to support the ongoing strike that had happened in Alabama. I believe in St. Clair Correctional Facility um, a year or two ago and after that time we kind of realized that there was similar self-organization of prisoners going on in different states across the country so the project uh, grew to be include a lot more than the people in the prison just in Alabama we also uh, picked up a huge network uh, which was formerly referred to as the Missouri Prison Labor Union um, and a lot of the, our inside IWW members in prison are located in Missouri. We're also picking up a few in Minnesota, uh, now in Texas, and in other states across. We have some in California. Um, but just to touch on a couple issues that we discussed that we showed in the movie, um, the idea between prison reform and prison abolition, right? And I also would consider myself to be an abolitionist, right? And I think a lot of times when we get on that topic, it sounds kind of crazy, like, we should just keep society the same and just open up the prison doors and let everybody out. And I think a lot of us know that that's actually impossible. But what I argue as an abolitionist is that um, prisons are a sign of a, of a different problem in society, right? So when we have a society like ours that's based on the centralization of wealth and power, where certain people are denied access to the things that they need, um, if you can't survive while staying within the laws of this society, you're going to break the law. So Crime is a symptom of a different cause, of a different problem within our society, right? So we have an increased crime rate, increased incarceration rate is actually a sign that there's other injustices that we're not willing to address. Um, and so, my bad, I'm trying, man. <laughs> so I think the abolitionist versus prison reform is that Myself, as a former prisoner, like my experience and what I picked up from that is that like nobody should be in a cage. Prisons are fit for animals. That's not something human beings should experience. And uh, I think goals of like a softer prison system or a more rehabilitated prison system, I really, I really don't vibe with that kind of talk. I think that we need to change society. We don't need to change prisons. We need to eliminate prisons and we need to make the societal changes that are necessary that we don't have to depend on uh, incarceration as our way of maintaining the status quo. Um, so a big part of abolitionist organizing is the self-organization of prisoners, right? Because when, whenever you're talking about or working on a specific issue, I think one of my principles, which a lot of people here share, is that the people who are directly affected by the issue are the ones that need to take the lead in carrying out that work and the ones that need to take, make the strategic decisions um, and the ones that are taking the, the, the bulk of the risk. So um, what I think what distinguishes the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee from a lot of these other things is that we are we support the self 
activity and self-organization of people who are incarcerated. We don't write and call into the prison and say, this is what you need to do. We say, we're looking for people who are, who are fighting to improve their material conditions day to day. And if, you're, if you have a crew or as an individual want to build something like that, we're willing to connect with you to support you and connect you with other people in other prisons that are doing the same thing. So I think that's this, and part of the reason I'm with this project is because there's no, uh, there's no other project that's really where prisoners are at the wheel that are in the driver's seat like they are in this one. And as a former prisoner, that was a really important uh, aspect of this work to me that I felt like we kind of have the, the strategic self-determination in, in pursuit of our struggle that in a lot of other places you get uh, institutions that are getting money from the Democrats or that are getting money from the DOC and you don't really get a whole lot of uh, free reign to say or do what you might want to say or do. So I think we kind of have to keep our organizations free from the institutions that are actually, that we're, we call ourselves fighting against. Um, and so our orientation to prison labor is because there's a couple types of different things that happen. There's private prisons and detention centers. There's state facilities that have private work going on in that facility. And then there's also uh, prisoners who are employed by the state in their correctional facility to uh, help with the day-to-day -day functioning of the prison. So in all those cases, prisoners in an institution can organize and use the tool of labor stoppage, which is something we've, we've basically been doing for years in the labor movement. We can apply those same strategies to prisons in order to uh, demand whatever kind of changes they, that are desired in the facility. Obviously with the goal ultimately of connecting to other movements on the outside and abolishing prisons altogether, but that's going to take changes in part in other parts of society um, as well. And this event, just a couple things to add, was called for uh, in support of the prisoners in Texas that are on strike right now. They've been on strike since April 4th. How many prisons are striking? Five to seven. Five to seven prisons in Texas are on strike currently. Um, and we've been running around trying to do as much media and communicate with as many of our people who are closer locally to support that as much as we can um, to see if they can keep that momentum and get some, some improvements to their day-to-day -day lives. Um, so that's kind of the essence of what IWAP is, is that we support the self-activity of prisoners in their pursuit of improving conditions. And I think that's all I've got. I'll contribute more during the discussion phase when those of us who've been incarcerated will talk. Um, that, that was good, bro. Good job. Thank you. All right, guys. Um, actually, Scotty, I watched that whole program. I watched the documentary that they showed, uh, and then I watched the full discussion, and it inspired me to think about prison abolition. Uh, to really think about it, and to and I wrote something that might shed some light on what I came to, conclusions I came to with my own, based on my own history and experiences and, and learning. Um, if you guys want to say something about it beforehand, go ahead. It's probably going to take me about two minutes well, Mike, to say what I have to say. Um, I was particularly 
you know, uh, appreciative of him saying that we have to keep putting this news out there because with news and, and more and more of the masses knowing about this, because you haven't seen anything. All you've heard is Donald Trump, you know, uh, the presidential races and stuff like that. That's dominating CNN, MSNBC, you know, big six that own 95% of what we watch, read, and, and, and um, hear, you know. So um, we have to keep supporting these people through reporting their stories and reporting the rebellions and whatnot because, you know, uh, for a lot of people, it hey, if they don't hear about it, it didn't happen. You understand what I'm saying? They would never know that five to seven uh, prisons have rose up in rebellion. They very well may have relatives, part of this, but because mainstream media not reporting on it, of course, you know, you're going to get it from local media, but you know, like years ago when we established a relationship with the uh, brothers uh, on the prison plantation from the uh, Free Alabama movement and them calling us, with, you know, into the programs and calling into the station and what have you. So, you know, um, that was important that he brought that up, the need to be the media that we want to see and so that they can build on the momentum. So they can't shut them down. So, you know, maybe, you know, we need to engage black Twitter or uh, somebody, abolitionists out there, you know, we got to pick up, pick it up and, and, and uh, keep stay on top of this story and push it out there. Because it's what? They they started what? On the 4th, he said? So what? It's been about what? What, 12 days somewhere around there? Eight days, nine days? So. That's uh, that's all I got to say on it. Your Honor, I agree uh, with with what the brother was saying, of course, and and it was a refreshing to hear, um, you know, his perspective on on uh, being strategic in the fight. I mean, again, we can't we can't belabor this point too much. We can't beat this, you know, beat this horse and call it a dead horse because it ain't dead. It's still alive. This is the main problem we have is controlling the narrative. And when I heard him say, you know, our mission is in our, our our objective, you know, we have to stay independent of these outside influences. And and again, you know, we we talk about these kind of things a lot with these other groups and movements and people and whatever. You've gotta you've got to remain true to what you're really in this fight to change. And linking up with these establishment sources and for their resources and whatnot is it's only gonna lead to, you know, to your slow death. I mean, you're not going to change anything linking up with people that are living and breathing and eating off of the establishment the way it is. So I really appreciated his wisdom in saying that, and I have to say that I haven't heard, you know, I haven't heard that wise of, a, of, a, uh, of an assessment of, of the battlefield situation from but only maybe one two other people in the years that I've been associated with with this. So so kudos to this brother and to that movement for knowing where they stand. I feel you on that, man. I, you know, I can't say enough how much I appreciate the idea that they're even discussing abolition in any way uh, because that's usually a word, a particular word, that is kept out of the conference, conversation for a specific reason. Um and also that the work they're doing with helping the prisoners themselves to fight for their freedom and their rights 
uh, with letter writing and helping to organizing is fantastic. <clears throat> and uh, I, I really, uh, like I said, I can't applaud them enough. But there's a confusion that occurs. Um, and I'll just also pointed out that they did give us a shout out at one time because they were saying, as Scotty mentioned, that they couldn't get this story to run on CNN and Fox and MSNBC and all of the mainstream um, outlets. Just the independent media primarily picked it up and carried it, and we carried it pretty well. Uh, they included us in that list, uh, and Unicorn Riot as well was one of the people that were carrying it. Now, as I was saying, a confusion tends to occur when prison abolition is presented as as the alternative to reform. Prison abolition itself is a specific form of abolition focused on a specific target for abolition, prisons. Then, as they state in the discussion, looks for answers on how to adapt society to a world where prisons as we know them do not exist. Well, that is actually reform. It does not make the sweeping charge of slavery nor legitimately recognize it as the crime of such. It's like blaming the graveyards for all the dead. For slavery abolitionists of the past and present, slavery was not encapsulated into the plantation, and ending plantations would not have ended slavery. As history has shown us, a new type of plantation, just like a new type of slavery, can be crafted and enacted. There are nearly a million law enforcement officers alone, not counting prison guards and all the industries, jobs, contracts, communities, who exist solely or primarily due to the prison system. In your push to end prisons, they are not going to just altruistically accept a pink slip with a smile. Believe that. Slavery abolition covers all the societal aspects involved with our conditions, including prisons and their purpose. Historically speaking, I understand that the abolitionist movement had many simultaneous goals, which were not always a unified goal. There were gradualists and immediatists, secessionists and integrationists, those who fought violently and those who were unifiers, diplomats or politicians, poets, activists, speakers, singers, artists of all ilk participated in a single idea, belief, and philosophy. But that was because they all agreed on certain aspects of their existence. They agreed that what they faced was legalized state-sanctioned slavery. They agreed that slavery is wrong in every sense and the man of God and a nation that possesses a legalized slave trade is an abomination nation on this earth. They agreed that legalized slavery and institutional racism in all its incarnations or manifestations must end forever. They believed that freedom from slavery by tyrants was a human right that all good men and women everywhere should fight and die to preserve. They believed that this core ideal was their greatest priority. The abolitionists differed considerably on how and when to bring this about, this envisioned abolition of uh, legalized slavery, but not on the depth and truth of the problem they face. We have yet to reach that critical mass consensus and thus piecemeal our problems into subcompartments. Therein, a level of confusion is created, and among the blind, an elephant's tail becomes a lion its trunk a serpent, and its legs become tree trunks. I'm proud that you all had this conversation and combined your knowledge base to bring more clarity. That's what we need, testimony that brings a moment of clarity, that point where we change our minds, where we ask new questions, because Lord knows we need new answers. And lastly, I would not discard the accumulated wisdom, tactics, plans, and strategies of our forebears who also bore the label of abolitionists simply because we mistakenly think 
that what we're fighting is different from what they were fighting. I learned a lot from them, and no one has fought harder or longer for freedom from bondage with more successes. We can even learn from their mistakes. It took Frederick Douglass almost 30 years to discover his own error in judgment. We can learn to prevent ours today. I don't think I have all or even any of the answers possibly we may need, but I've thought about this and studied it for quite some time, and one thing I know to be irrefutable, a truth, this is legalized slavery. That is my personal starting point. Keep up the great work and count on our support here. There you have it. Break time. We'll be right back after these messages. Not a Wu Tanga. We set the foundation. Come on. And we tend to the east. One, two, three, and a three, two, one. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Make Black Talk Radio your choice for digital black radio. New black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio, where we're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking and uh, what we can do to make a difference and put an end to this forever in this country. Um, I was just reading something that I was inspired to write based on the... uh, constant movement I've seen, we've seen of uh, abolition now coming into the conversation. And hopefully uh, I added something that might add to the narrative and clear things up a little bit more. Well, Scotty, um, or Johanna, since we're doing an open forum today, I had a couple of uh, a couple of uh, studies that came out I wanted to get on at some point. Let's also get that as well. You know, it's not often that we, just a two-hour program, and uh, usually we're just going through story after story after story, and that is important information that we be sharing to let people know the hell that they live in. But uh, it is an open forum, so we want to hear from you, the listener, if you have any questions that you would like to ask. Well, maybe you're not convinced that slavery was never abolished. Maybe you, you know, believe your fifth grade teacher or something when she lied to you and told you that. <clears throat> um, so give us a call, 641-715-3660. The participant code is 549-032-POUND. Hit star six and one to come in on air. You can also use the web-based flash phone. All right, go ahead. And please try to keep the conversation on the topic at hand. Anybody on, Scotty? 
I guess we don't have anybody this this uh, come in just yet. At any rate, uh, so what uh what direction was you going to take, Max? Like you had another another link you want us to to break out yeah, into here. There's a couple of studies that came out, and I wanted to share them with people. Uh, kind of side by side studies. The one, the first one is this new study on. And this is the title. I didn't write this. This is the title. It says new study on drug use confirms what black people have been saying this whole time. <laughs> And it's literally true. I mean, we've been telling you, telling you, you need a study every day, a different study. They just confirm it a little bit more, and nothing ever convinces you. Apparently, the study, which took place over 12 years, found that the rates of hard drug abuses was highest among non-Hispanic whites, followed by Hispanics and then African Americans. The research found that whites were more than 30 times likely to have cocaine use disorder, 50 times more likely to develop opiate use disorder, and 18 times more likely to have PCP use disorder than blacks. Those findings are striking considering the widely accepted stereotype of African Americans as the most prevalent abusers of hard drugs. Linda A. Teplin, professor of psychiatry and behavioral science at Northwestern University and author of the study, said in a statement, our findings add to the growing debate on how the war on drugs has affected African Americans. Researchers studied more than 1,800 delinquent youth and followed their lives through their late 20s. We found that African Americans are less likely than any other racial ethnic group to abuse hard drugs, Teplin said. Yet African Americans are disproportionately incarcerated for drug crimes. However, some people pointed out that the study's findings were already somewhat acknowledged, especially among black people. Jonathan Wall, a law student at Harvard University, started a thread full of studies that can, be e that can easily be confirmed by black people. <laughs> That's the first study that came out, and I'll put that one on the page. Uh, but it does show you something different there where they tell you how much more likely whites are to be on hard drugs than blacks in comparison to the incarceration rates that blacks suffer when it comes to these drug laws. <clears throat> And the other study came out from the Washington Post, and uh, there was a statement in here that just kind of touched, it blew my mind, literally. I'm going to read, I guess, up to that point. A new academic study that builds on Washington Post research into fatal shootings by police has found that unarmed black men were shot and killed last year at disproportionately high rates and that officers involved may be biased in how they perceive threats. The study, Fatal Shootings by U.S. Police Officers in 2015, a bird's eye view, was conducted by criminal justice researchers from the University of Louisville and the University of South Carolina. It is being reviewed for academic publication and will be shared this week with members of the Major Cities Chiefs Police Association, which includes officials from departments in the 50 largest cities and metropolitan areas. In 2015, the Post documented 990 fatal shootings by police. Ninety-three of them involved people who were unarmed. Black men accounted for about 40% of the unarmed people fatally shot by police and, when adjusted by population, were seven times as likely as unarmed white men to die from police gunfire, the Post found. Researchers 
who use data collected by the Post found that when other factors are considered, the racial disparity that the racial disparity persists, but it is lower twice the rate for unarmed black men compared with unarmed white men. Researchers adjusted for the age of the person shot, whether the person suffered from mental illness whether the person was attacking a police officer and for the crime rate in the neighborhood where the shooting occurred. The only thing that was significant in predicting whether someone shot and killed by police was unarmed was whether or not they were black, period. Man. Service. I mean, it, 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 I think I think a moment of silence is, is uh, you know, it's the radio or what have you. And I understand we got a platform to, you know, continue informing people and keep the keep the airways uh, full of of uh, you know information and activity. But I, I think a couple seconds of just uh, letting the shoes drop there when you get done reading, I think it's necessary. I mean, that's some heavy information. This is very much like the the. Uh, the declaration from the uh, uh, former Nixon aide, which actually that quote has been in, you know, in the news cycle several times over the last 10, 15 years. And it's still just met by people with a stone face like, well, the drug war never really was about drugs. Okay, so what now? It's the uh, same thing with this. All this information you've ever been taught, all these studies, all these stats, all this, it's all BS, man. <laughs> I, I don't even, I don't know. This is what people build their arguments on, though. This is what people build, you know, political uh, campaigns on. And it's like if you don't have the money to counter what some fool is out here saying and misquoting and just throwing it out there to get a reaction out of the people that they want to vote for them, if you don't have the money to fight back with your facts and scream just as loudly, your voice won't be heard. And so what they said, which is a lie, will become the truth in the ears and the hearts and the minds of the unlearned and of the ignorant and those that can't be bothered with, with you know, the, the situations that we're dealing with in this country right now. It, it's it's mind-blowing to me. This is factual information, people. We don't lie on this program. We don't make stuff up. We don't attack people. We don't go into hyperbole. We don't do ad hom attacks. We don't throw out straw men arguments. We stay on point. We stick with the facts. We just lay the facts out as they are. So you just heard more facts. Man, that quote just messed my whole head up. When I first read it, it should mess up your head, too. The only thing that was significant in predicting whether someone shot and killed by police was unarmed was whether or not they were black. So if you're white, then you have some kind of a chance. But if you're black, you got no chance. Hmm. Okay. Well, I put both of those studies up on New Abolitionist Radio. Please feel free to share them and uh, explore them and uh, let people know what's going on out here. Uh, anything you want to share in particular today, Yarnan or Scotty, in addition to what we have already? I don't, I don't know if Scotty had anything, but what we've been talking about with the, uh, the, the prison uh, strikes, the plantation strikes across the country, I did want to mention this one that came from uh, uh, Here and Now, which is typically like a, a NPR program or what have you was talking about. Uh, this was just from the 12th, so this is a fairly new story. Texas inmates protest inhumane conditions. So we're seeing, again, state to state, the connected line. And another thing in this strike situation that's interesting to me is California having been ordered by federal uh, uh, courts 
what has it been, eight years ago, I think, eight or nine years ago, ordered to, uh, to decarcerate, to lower the prison populations, you know, for years, and uh, never having really done it. And then when they did, when they finally have said that they're down in numbers, we've reported on this program time and again that those numbers that they, that they so-called let out of those prisons, they just sent them to other states. So that's actively human trafficking. So we know uh, Oklahoma, Texas, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, maybe Tennessee, but I know several of these states, or Arizona and uh, New Mexico, of course, uh, are all places where California is sending prisoners. So when we see this line from California, you know, all the way back across to Florida, it's kind of a line you can see across the map. These are all states where people are being transferred from one prison to another to affect the numbers you know, on their state rolls, which are all 120, 150%, 200% to capacity. So at any rate, uh, just trying to give you, again, like some connected kind of paint the picture so you understand how widespread and pervasive it really is. But again, looking at, uh, at this situation from this uh, here and now story, so the inmates in seven Texas prisons have gone on a strike protesting what they call inhumane living, or what they call, <laughs> like it's in their opinion that this is inhumane. Meanwhile, people are dying from open wounds and infections and, you know, whatever, uh, living work and, and working conditions. The action began last Monday with dozens of inmates refusing to leave their cells. Within a day, a general lockdown was imposed, rendering the strike moot. The lockdown is still in effect. So, see, that's their counter. If you won't go to work, then we put everybody on lockdown. And, and then that way we'll say that you're not, effect, you're not actually striking. We, we, we closed work today. Well, they won't be able to, to stand up to that, and the inmates know that. The, the prison won't be able to stop the workflow for very long because the corporations are expecting them to produce on a day-to-day -day basis. Just like you go to work and every day you've got a number you've got to make, you've got to produce a certain amount of something in your job, these people have the same kind of constraints on them for slave wages. Uh, Texas is home to more than 150,000 prisoners. Most of them are in state facilities where almost all work for no pay. Here and now's Robin Young spoke with Erica Gamel, who has a prisoner advocacy group to discuss the strike and working conditions in, in their prison system. So it's an audio uh, interview. So I'll put the link up on the, the New Abolitionist page. But um, again, you know, listen to it and just pay attention. You know, this is happening for real. And we told you last year, when uh, Rulaski County uh, had their strike, uh, prison bill 800 that ended up holding 2,800, 2,000 men in a tent city uh, exposed to the elements outdoors, animals, scorpions, bugs, whatever, just coming in all night and day or whatever. And when they finally stopped working, it, it became a strike, and, and they had to move everybody out and close the prison, left the, left the city in uh, $70 million in debt. So it just destroyed everything, 400 jobs lost, uh, $70 million in debt, a few more people died, all those people got dispersed all throughout the country into other prisons, and the problem's still, still the same. So they're striking again this year because nothing changed. I, uh, I have a couple of uh, things I want to focus on, a couple of stories. So, uh, in addition to New Abolitionist Radio on Facebook, uh, the Black Talk Media Project is uh, also uh, – you know, launched the Watch a Cop page about a year or so ago. I can't tell you the exact date, but that's not important. Important, but all this page does is watch cops, and you know, so there's a couple of interesting stories there. Uh, this one story out of Chicago is something we've reported on. I remember, uh, I heard Johanna's voice in my head talking about they doing all this killing in Chicago, paying out all this money to settle cases. 
And this new story says, you know, they paid out $500 million. That's a half a billion dollars, get this, since 2004. A mm. half a billion dollars settlements. But few, very few of these police ever even lose their jobs, let alone get prosecuted and go to prison. I know Anita Alvarez, who was a longtime Cook County attorney, uh, which covers Chicago, very tight with the police unions. She uh, and Black Lives Matter and other activists up there, I'm sure, uh, no more death penalty. Uh, Mark Clements, former prisoner, um, former, you know, enslaved African and whatnot, victim of John Burge. And I know they had something to do with rallying against getting Anita Alvarez out of there. Remember, she only released the, she only charged that cop in Laquan McDonald's killing after the judge ruled that they had to release, you know, that video under the uh, uh, news media's uh, Freedom of Information Act request. So, you know, nothing new there. Um, here's another story. Now, this will make you very angry, and this is why, you know, we have so many killings because there is no deterrent. And we're told that, you know, law and order is supposed to be there to deter people from committing heinous acts of crimes against other individuals. We ain't talking about victimless crimes, but heinous crimes against other individuals. But then, you know, you keep giving people a slap on the wrist, then, well, where's the deterrent? Where's the deterrent to that? So you got WJBF News out of North Augusta. I believe that's in South Carolina. It might be in Georgia. I'm not sure. Is there a North? Uh, uh, no, this is in Edgefield, South Carolina. Um, is is where this story's coming from. Anyway, um, a former North Augusta Department of Public Safety officer who was charged with a felony for shooting and killing a black driver. It was a 64-something-year-old man. Uh, they had started chasing him on the road, and he didn't stop until he got into his driveway, and this cop uh, got out of his car, ran up, and shot and killed him. So I'll, I'll continue on with the article. It said, killing a black driver at the end of a police chase has taken a plea deal and has been sentenced to probation. See, this is what this is what Jonathan Jackson, not Jonathan Jackson, um, what's his brother, George Jackson, co-defendant, Rochelle, I believe it was Rochelle McGee, or was that Angela Davis's? Uh, you know, former Panthers, and there's a clip that we have of him. I, I don't got it loaded up right now, but he talked about these judges practicing slavery under the color of the law, and and so this is again is how the the system of slavery keeps perpetuating itself. That sends a signal to others. You know, if you get caught, don't worry about it. You know, uh, I'm not going to send you to prison because you know I got ties to the police union. I'm just pro-slavery. You know, so that's coming out of Edgefield, South Carolina. He killed this man, and all he got was probation from this judge. Um, let me see. Uh, here's another story inside the county. Check that out. As Max was talking earlier, I believe, about, you know, the number of killings and what have you. The Guardian, um, you know, they came out. But shout out to Kill by Police. They were the first ones I seen came out with a database. Uh, we had them as guests on the program, New Abolitionist Radio. I think they started in 2013. I think the county started maybe two years ago, uh, you know, sometime after Kill by Police. And killbypolice.net is still up. But this is about the county. 
Um, I, I will say, of course, they have more resources because I guess people ain't donating enough money to kill by police, which is, you know, totally uh, um, volunteer nonprofit uh, database on the police killings. But the Guardian, of course, has more resources, and so you know they spend a little extra money to get some developers to where you can sort it out by race, sort it out by state, so you know just get a, break it down. Uh, every imaginable way to identify patterns and practices, as as we've heard. Um, so Guardian is recording every death caused by American law enforcement in 2016, something that no government agency has done. Even after unrest rocked major cities following controversial fatal encounters with police, our investigation titled The County was conceived after the protests of 2014, so I remember correctly, in Ferguson, Missouri following the fatal shooting of Michael Brown, an unarmed black 18-year-old. Claims by activists that police were racially biased and using lethal force could not be measured against reliable data. Official statistics allowing comparisons of death rates between cities and states did not exist. A live discussion of national importance was restricted to speculation and antidotes. Uh, the county began in 2015 and by the end of that year had prompted the FBI to promise, now they didn't say they did, they said they promised, you know, just like, you know, uh, we've heard so many promises from so many politicians and they just only broke those promises because they're liars. Uh, but the county beginning in 2015, by the end of that year, it had prompted uh, the FBI to promise to overhaul its discredited voluntary reporting system. See, this was also, man, Bill Clinton, people just, y'all don't realize Bill Clinton's and his wife's true legacy, because she wasn't just no floatist like Michelle Obama, where, you know, she going around uh, and, and working with kids and making sure they're getting exercise and eating healthy, you know, non-controversial issues and what have you, non-political issues that shouldn't be, even though people make politics out of her trying to get uh, kids to eat healthy, but, but Hillary Clinton where we've seen a video of her calling kids super predators, giving a speech at King College in uh, Vermont, uh, no doubt. And and so, but, um, you know, in that 1994, I think it was in this crime bill too, um, that was some of the stuff that the uh, black co uh, congressional representative was asking for. But what happened was they did not get, the database of what they're saying the FBI should have been had and what they got was a violent. They didn't get in a law requiring these police departments to report it. Every, just by every police department get federal block grants to fight the drug war, to do immigration. They're getting federal money. So you control the federal government controls a big portion of their budget. And so, you know, they could say if you don't report all the deaths and deadly force and, and, stuff like that to the FBI in this database or the Justice Department, then we're going to cut off that money. No, that has never happened. And so the Republicans and Bill Clinton and, and, and the, their Democratic allies, you know, put it in there to where they didn't have to report. And that is why, you know, there are hundreds, you know, I don't know how many, uh, if one of you guys ever heard, how many police departments are in the United States? But a lot of them don't report, and they're not required to report because the law said we recommend that you report. So here we are getting another promise 
to overhaul the discredited volunteer reporting system. So we're talking about Lynch. Lynch's was in there in 2014. Separately, it had led the Department of Justice to launch a new program for county police involved Dell's mirroring the Guardian U.S. project and joined directly on its findings. It had also built an unlong online community of 35,000 subscribers on Facebook and Twitter that helps our reporters keep the project up to date. So you go on and, and, and uh, read some more. I'm going to post this. I'm going to share this one from Watch Cop 2. New abolitionist radio, and the last thing that I want to, you know, touch upon is many, many more uh, stories there. Um, um, I published this story on uh, BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. It's in the uh, member blog section. South Carolina secessionist party vows to raise the Confederate flag again at the South Carolina State House. I'm not going to read the entire article, but you can go check it out. I'll publish it as well to New Abolitionist Radio. But, you know, um, I don't have to tell you all, because we reported on it. Max was down there. Um, you know, Bree, Bree, what's her name? Bree Summer? Was it Bree Newsom? Bree Newsom from Charlotte, North Carolina, you know, right across the river from me. Um, climbed the pole got arrested for it and what have you. And so now, you know, these secessionists, and they say they got a little political party, but they ain't been recognized by the state. And they say, you know, they got hundreds of people and whatnot in different counties all over South Carolina. So on the date, let me go ahead and find the date. I didn't really publish the date, but I would have to click on the event on Facebook to give you the date because I didn't want to, you know, uh, let me see. July the 10th at 11 a.m., they'll be meeting at the South Carolina State House at 1100 uh, Gervais Street, Columbia, South Carolina. And they said, join us at the South Carolina State House on the anniversary of the greatest treason in our state's history, on the anniversary of the lowering of the Confederate flag. We will be raising it up against, again. The same flag, the same place, the same day. Fellow Southerners from across the southern states will stand together in solidarity in defense of what we hold sacred. A Libyan, local organizations, and a Confederate soldier honor guard will make this an event to remember. Will you be there? Uh, southern Fellowship, uh, I guess is a sponsor. Live music by David Coons and the Coyotes and other guest speakers. And these are terrorists, first and foremost. And they can talk about what, what they hold sacred. What they hold sacred was their right to own slaves, even though the vast majority of Confederate soldiers were dirt poor, you know what I'm saying, begging out there on the street and hoping they can get a job as an overseer on the plantation and what have you. But they were living dirt poor and, and what have you. And, but they dream just like, you know, you have a lot of dirt poor uh, races today thinking that they're going to be the next Bill Gates or something if they just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, blah, 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 blah. Like everybody can become a multimillionaire. But these Confederate soldiers had that dream. Even though I can barely afford to feed my wife and, and children, you know, uh, I may be able to save up, you know, $300 and purchase me a Negro. You know, I'm probably give me a Negro woman. She could wash dishes and I could take out back. You know, these, these are sick individuals. There's no honor to this. There is none. 
And who's giving them permission? Do they have permission to to raise that flag on that pole? You know, it it would be awful funny if if you know just one day that pole wasn't there. You know what I'm saying? What's what's on the pole now? Are they gonna take? I imagine they replace it with South Carolina state flag, right? So you know what they gonna take that down and put up the, the enslavers flag, the enslavers battle flag. This is a battlefield. This is war. These people ain't never stopped the Civil War. They ain't never stopped practicing slavery. They ain't never stopped targeting black and non-white people, but black people primarily. We saw what happened in Charleston, gunned down nine people, terrorists with that flag, that battle flag, because it's a war to them. We're the only ones acting like we, you know, this is peacetime, and these are just deranged individuals coming out of nowhere, been watching too much Fox News or or what have you, or, you know, reading right-wing blogs and whatnot. But no, these children, people like Dylan Roof, have been raised like that. Somebody, you know, they, they, that gets instilled in them as children. I know I live here. I live in, in southern west, you know, I would call it southwest North Carolina. Dylan Roof was making his way to, you know, this county. He was spotted by a woman from this county after he did his deed. But we acting like it's peacetime. You know, I'm seeing the majority of us. There's some of us prepared, but, you know, so um, I would encourage all abolitionists, all anarchists, all anti-racists, you know, to uh, turn out for this event and overwhelm them with your numbers. And if it turns out like, you know, the uh, the group, the Klan group from North Carolina that staged the, uh, got the permits to stage the rally uh, at the South Carolina State House ground right before the flag, while the flag was being debated on whether or not it was coming down. And afterwards, you know, Max didn't, it, it was a little bit of ass whooping going on. Well, I, I was there I was every, every, day, every of day of that. So, so, you know what I'm saying? This, hey, these people talking about, committing slavery. They're they are openly celebrating slavery and they want to raise the slaver's flag. Even though we can talk about old glory as they call it, you know, is slavery still existing under it and under, you know, uh, 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 you know, going way further than the Confederacy. Confederacy only existed, what, four years? United States been practicing slavery going on what, fellas, 200 and what years? Longer than yeah. that, bro. Oh, slavery on this continent, but the, the USA as a oh, republic right. is only, what, 200 years old? And they've right. been practicing slavery ever since because it was incorporated. You know, it, it, it was the foundation was laid by slavers. Hmm. The Jeffersons, the Washingtons that right. have monuments and whatnot, all of this has to be knocked down and paved over if we're ever to have peace and unity and reconciliation on this continent. But these terrorists like that, they cannot be allowed to stand. Calling on all anarchists, all abolitionists, all anti-racists, all black nationalists, all, all, all my, you know, Latinos, what have you. Warm them like the ant, because the ant conquers the ant. Yeah, I'm sorry. I ain't mean to go on. As you pointed out, brother, I was there every single day of that, uh, helping organize it, 
put beside my comrades here in South Carolina and North Carolina in protest of that. Uh, when you hear on video the day of the flag coming down and people start chanting na 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 goodbye, that was me leading that. That had done that. I was there with Tribal Rain and Nikki Finney uh, as it came down. I was there the day that Bree Newsom brought the flag down. Uh, just two hours later, recording the I denounced this emancipation as a so-called uh, this so-called emancipation as a fraud by. Frederick Douglass. So I saw all of this unfold. I, I was there when the ass whoopings was going on. <laughs> I was there with the um, Quakers that had came in from Atlanta to be uh, witnesses to what was occurring with the police and the people at the time. Now, what I think they're trying to do with these racists that are coming in, in uh, to South Carolina and from South Carolina to try to raise the flag is to do what Bree Newsom did in reverse. I think they're going to literally shimmy up that flagpole and put it back up. Because unless the governor signs it back in, it's not going to happen. So they must have some kind of, um, you know, as I said, anti Newsom plan where they plan on bringing that flag back up. But you can rest assured, Scotty, we are not going to put up with that BS. We didn't put up with it before. We led the nation in doing it. We're the first to accomplish that in this fight to bring down that flag from the capital of the South. And we are not going to allow these races to just come in under the governor's, governor's watch or the mayor's watch and do it again. I'll climb up the flag right behind him and take it right down. I think it's interesting what, uh, you know, obviously both of you are talking about what Scotty was saying about, you know, the uh, the very foundations. And even, you know, a couple of weeks ago on this program, bringing out the uh, the notes right out of Thomas Jefferson's own memoirs, you know, discussing uh, the financial component, uh, the the capitalist, you know, the the true nature of this country, you know, being built on capitalism and, and his early musings on that. But I think it's interesting um, the connection between, you know, a lot of people claim to be believers and, uh, you know, in this country, that's something we still got a lot of people that will, you know, talk about, pray about it or, you know, God going to do it or, you know, these kind of things. I don't knock anybody for their beliefs, but if you're claiming a belief in something that has told you, you know, what to do, you can't very well say you're not getting results, you know, because your God's not doing it. And I'm saying this to say, you know, what we're just pointing out to you right now, these are idols. So when, yes. you, read, when you read the Bible and you read about, you know, the, the idols in high places, I mean, what do you think is an idol in high place, but uh, what is that uh the, the mountain up in uh, South Dakota uh, with all your heads on it, that that will qualify as a high place, as, a, as an idol. You know, I mean, you're putting that in your nation, all of these monuments and all the, what Scotty's talking about, all of these monuments and, and uh, tourist spots and places where you can go look at these people who were avid slave holders, traitors, abusers, rapists, pedophiles. Come the hell on, people. Do you really honestly think? And again, I know it's all kind of people in this fight, and we need everybody. So I'm not trying to alienate anybody that chooses not to believe or was not raised in that or other faiths or anything. I'm just talking about the people that claim faith in Christ, let's just say, the Bible people, the Baptists or whatever. America claims that it's a Christian nation to some extent or another. You're a freaking joke. Your own handbook tells you. 
tear down them high places. Tear down those idols. Stop worshiping these all this foolishness these people go out here and go do and tell you to do, and you give your money to it. You, you give your celebration to it. You take a day off and hoop and holler and do whatever to celebrate this stuff. You're not going to ever change anything worshiping these people that are the ones that put the evil on you that you still can't escape. What sense does that make? These bastards traded in human lives and said that these people were not even human beings. I don't care if it's your direct bloodline or your ancestors. I don't care if it's if you're not black or if you well we was here before. All these different theories is like what Max was talking about earlier. When you get into these sub arguments that escape from the main overlying thing that will kill it all. The main thing is this country was built on slavery, and every damn last one of them founding fathers was some kind of way raping somebody and getting away with it. Screwing somebody's little children, screwing the incest and molestation of their own babies they made with the slaves. Come on, man. Get real with me right now. These are people that you are loving and, and worshiping still to this day with the money and their faces on the currency. You still respect their name, the schools and the institutions named after them, telling your children about the great history. You are worshiping the people who by right and by the word that they left in these laws, they set this up to be a slave state. And you're worshiping them. So when you really get tired of it, you'll tear all this crap down when you really get tired of it. Yeah, they, people say, like, the flag don't matter. We should be fighting bigger things. But I've lived under the shadow of that flag. And let me tell you, it does matter. It does matter that the people that were breeding your ancestors like dogs had that over their head at the same time. These same people that were enslaving people here uh, in South Carolina had that flag as their symbol of conquering, as the, the, the people who ran things in South Carolina. And that flag is gone. It's, it's down. It ain't coming back. Ain't nobody going to bring it back. I don't care who signed what. It's not coming back. And if you're anything like South Carolina, y'all need to get together and bring down those idols that are nothing but demonic worship in its most purest sense. What does it represent? It certainly ain't heritage. It's hate. And it's treasonous. And it has to end. Yeah, I get bothered, like I said, because I was there, brother. I was there. I live here in South Carolina. My children were was raised up underneath that flag. Don't tell me what it means to me. You sitting up in New York or Rhode Island or Jamaica or whatever the hell you is talking about what it means to me. Right, right. You know, uh, and also a, a former uh, abolitionist, and he said he was an abolitionist on this program, Mr. John Sims. Wasn't he down there in South Carolina, too, with the Burn and Berry, you know, yes. uh, tour, you know, with the 13 states, uh, you know, to go burn that Confederate flag? And so we had him on the program, and, you know, uh, he had wrote that piece for the Huffington Post and then turned it into, you know, spoken uh, uh, word. And so, you know, uh, he was on here, and he was talking about it's, it's visual terrorism. It's, it's, yes. it's passive, aggressive, you know, uh, 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 visual representations of their aggression towards you, man. And then they're making you pay for it. We're paying for it. The victims, the ancestors of the victims are paying for it. And I ain't talking about just enslaved Africans because free blacks suffered under it too, you know. So. You know, uh, for people that say these flags don't matter, that you don't understand war. Right. What's the whole point in these war games? Capture the enemy's flag and whatnot. The, you know, symbolism 
is very strong, you know, even in the spiritual realm as well as in the physical realm. So that's what I had to say, you know, about those people who think that, you know, it's not important and we should leave these symbols alone as a reminder. No, it's a reminder for them. Not, I don't want to be, you know, bombarded all the time with black suffering. You know, I do my own study and I talk about it presently. You know what I'm saying? But that's also a way for them to remember, you know, the good old days and what have you. And we want our country back. That's the country they're talking about. And they got it. These dumb clucks just don't re recognize it. And they too poor to invest in the GO group and the CCA. So, see, it's just like back then. The wealthy was controlling slavery back then and then got a bunch of poor clucks to go die for slavery, and they didn't even weren't even enslaving nobody. Was lucky to get a job on a plantation, overseeing, you know, being an overseer. Man, I, I could let me shut up. Yo, Scott, I, yo, the, Scott, reason that, the reason that, man, the reason we read now is because there's more than enough to talk about. We could talk about it all day, 24 hours a day, until it ends. Hmm. Indeed, we lack. We do not lack material. Uh, every day we prove ourselves right. We prove the abolitionist movement right. We prove that the solution is to end slavery and to stop focusing on all these sub-articles and sub-departments of things that are literally symptoms of a bigger problem. Address the bigger problem. Take the whole tree out, root, leaf, and all. Slavery has to end, and it's so embedded in everything we do those parts have to end, too. Yes, a million law enforcement officers in the United States of America, about 70% of them need to lose their job because we need to free all these people and stop hunting all these people so they are no longer necessary. And as I said earlier, I'm not a prison abolitionist because I believe that some people deserve to be in prison. Some people should be put away from society. Some people should be locked behind bars. But there ain't no way in hell or heaven that it should be 13 million people a year going through jails and 2.4 million sitting statically in prisons. Right, especially when, you know, the vast majority of people in prison that 13 million you're talking about is victimless crimes and crimes of poverty and and survival and, and what it's not all murderers and rapists that's the the lowest piece of the pie you know maybe one third maybe less 30 percent something like that but 70 percent come on I think man it's somewhere around, i think we found at one point it was somewhere around 17 percent are actual violent crimes that you know involve you know murder or actual crimes against other people i think it was somewhere around 17 percent we we uh, researched last year yeah, so yeah, mass incarceration, the whole pie came out and showed, too, where it all went. But, you know, I, I just want to play this track, man, you know, to, re, to uh, put this out in the universe, man, that we still at war, man. And so, you know, to those people down there, y'all better hope. When, let me see. When is that? On a Saturday? Because if it's on a Saturday, when I'm not tied to this studio board broadcasting show, I will be down there, okay? I will be down there, all right? So I, I will well, check. That will be our second time meeting there, Brother Scotty. <laughs> Indeed, that will be a good occasion for you to be there. But I, I, I want to go ahead and play that Burn and Bury by John Sims, if y'all don't mind, since we don't have any calls right now. We got 15 minutes left in the program and till, still two segments left. I believe Burn and Bury is about five minutes long. So all right, let's just cut it tight. 
and we'll Let's close. Into it. What you say, Scotty? I said we'll close the uh, the program tonight out with it. Let's go ahead and hit those other two segments because we do got a uh, Lotus Place coming up. So we got to be off well, five minutes early, so yeah. Sounds good to me, brother. Well, what our next segment will be then is our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And you remember earlier in the program, we'll be discussing uh, people on death row and, uh, you know, how many people are being released and exonerated now. I believe that the average now is three a day. In any case, our Rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad today is Kia Stewart. Kia Stewart. Eagerly, and this comes from the uh, IPNote.org news. Kia Story uh, Stewart eagerly descended the courthouse steps into the arms of waiting family and friends on Monday, April 13, 2015. In taking those strides, he also stepped back into the free world. Kia was exonerated through a unique joint effort between IPNO and the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office. The newly launched Conviction, Integrity, and Accuracy Project, the conclusion of Kia's case, and the end of his wrongful incarceration marked the project's first success. Kia was mistakenly identified as the man who shot Brian B.J. Craig on a public street in broad daylight on July 31, 2005, just a month before Hurricane Katrina would devastate New Orleans. Within, within hours of the shooting, police developed Kia as a suspect in the case based on a factually inaccurate anonymous tip. By the end of the day, without canvassing the scene for witnesses or doing anything else to develop leads, police included Kia's photograph in the array for BJ's distraught friends to identify. This single eyewitness identification was the only evidence against Kia. At the end of at the time of his arrest, Kia was just seventeen years old. He was forced to suffer through the hells of Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath from the Orleans Parish prison where he believed he would be left to drown in his cell. Even after being belatedly evacuated, he waited for months without an attorney and with no way to contact his family. In 2006, the Tulane University Law Clinic accepted an appointment to represent Kia on his second-degree murder charge. Through the clinic, students and attorneys were dedicated to Kia's case. They were unable to locate witnesses in post-Katrina New Orleans. Four years after his arrest, Kia was wrongfully convicted after a short trial at which the state presented one eyewitness. Shortly after his conviction, the clinic began to uncover some of the many witnesses who would eventually prove his innocence. Unfortunately, despite the clinic filing several motions for a new trial based on his evidence, Kia's conviction became final and he was sent to the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, where he was sent to work in the fields. IPNO began to work on Kia's case in 2013. In total, through vigorous investigation, we discovered at least 18 witnesses who saw the crime and saw that Kia was not the shooter, heard the true perpetrator, confessed to the crime, or who proved Kia's alibi. After bringing the case to the district attorney's office and doing a joint review of the evidence, IPNO and the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office entered into a series of joint stipulations concerning the breadth of this new evidence. On April 13, 2015, Judge Darrell Derbigny reviewed these stipulations and ordered that Kia's conviction be vacated and he be immediately released from custody. The district attorney office immediately agreed to dismiss all charges against Kia 
for his crime, for this crime. And we here at New Abolitionist Radio welcome you to freedom, brother. Welcome. Salute. That's a hell of a story. Salute. They all are, man. They all are. They all are. Straight from the pits of hell comes these stories of survival. You know, it's just it's amazing to me that this country still even pretends like it. How can you claim? I mean, what, don't they love Martin Luther King here? Didn't he? Get is that. he the one that they said uh, uh, injustice anywhere is is, is injustice Just everywhere? Or did he say that, or he he quoted somebody else? I mean, the statement is true, so I don't understand how we even pretend like there's a precedent of justice in this country when we've shown you injustice is literally everywhere. Every state in the union has taken part in it. So how can you say there's justice anywhere when there's so much injustice everywhere? Oh, well, so we got our uh, abolitionists in profile. Uh, we're going to move on to that. Uh, do we, I don't know. Do we have a recorder? Yes, sir, uh, you know? I just wanted to say that, it's, it, you know, the story is, is terrible. Kidnapped as a child, uh, yes. 17 years old, thrown into a prison cell, left to, to drown where the prison cells were being flooded, and then held for years before you finally were convicted on lies, on just lies. When all the evidence was there available, and he finally, he finally got released in 2015, it's amazing, man. Every day this happens. Well, there you go. Our next segment is our abolitionist in profile, remembering those of the past. And if you'd like to hear more about this particular abolitionist in profile, we provided one of his speeches on New Abolitionist Radio. You on it, Scotty? Is this this one we're reading, Scotty? Why are we doing it? Uh, yeah, read the, the profile. For Alexander Crummel. Yeah, I didn't know if he's yeah. in a cue to music or if he had it recorded already. There we go. Alexander Crummel, 1819-1898. Alexander Crummel was an Episcopalian priest, minister, scholar, and teacher born in New York City in 1819 to free black parents. He spent much of his life addressing the conditions of African Americans while urging an educated black elite to aspire to the highest intellectual attainments as a refutation of the theory of black inferiority. Crummel began his education at an integrated school in New Hampshire. He later transferred to an abolitionist institute in Whitesboro, New York, where he learned both the classics and manual labor skills. However, after being denied admittance to the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church because of his race, Crummel was forced to study privately. Nonetheless, at the age of 25, he became an Episcopalian minister. From 1848 through 1853, Crummel lectured and studied in England. He also graduated from Queen's College, Cambridge University, in 1853. Crummel left England to become an educator in Liberia, accepting a faculty position at Liberia College in Monrovia. From his new post, Crummel urged African Americans to immigrate to Liberia. Internal politics, however, forced Crummel to leave Liberia in 1872, shattering his dream of the West African nation as a Christian republic populated by both indigenous people and African American immigrants. Crummel returned to the United States and settled in Washington, D.C., where he founded St. Luke's Episcopal Church. When some Episcopal bishops proposed a segregated missionary district for black parishes, Crummel organized a group now known as the Union of Black Episcopalians to fight the proposal. Crummel also lectured widely across the United States, stressing the social responsibilities of educated middle-class African Americans as race leaders. From 1895 to 1897, Crummel taught at Howard University in Washington, D.C. In 1897, the last year of his life, Crummel helped found the American Negro Academy and became its first president with W.E.B. Du Bois, 
William Saunders Scarborough as vice president. Alexander Crummel, who would become a major influence on a myriad of black leaders, including Du Bois, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, and Marcus Garvey, died at Point Pleasant, New Jersey in 1898, and New Abolitionist Radio salutes this good brother elder. Salute. So well, there you have it. There you have it. Uh, the call to action, man. The call to action. There's a little bit of uh, what I call uh, the, what is it? Uh, the politics of uh, of us being on our best behavior supposedly is going to help combat, you know, the systems of, of oppression. So I mean, I won't knock the man. He's he did what he had to do during the time, but we're never going to be good enough. We ain't never going to act right enough. We ain't never going to be on our best behavior or get churched up enough to stop slavers from slaving. Well, there, there was a speech that I, I put on New Abolitionist Radio. It was titled, Everyone Knows Something of Slavery, But No One Has a Full Knowledge of It But the Slave. And he spoke about on an international level about slavery. And you can almost see the times reflected in today just by reading it. Well, guys, if we can move to our um, final comments. Um, <laughs> I don't really have... Uh, too much to say. I went on my little mini rant against these racists who want to be, you know, enslaving us except for they too poor to buy prison stock. But, I mean, it's just a shame, though, that things have not changed, you know, and I'm not even talking about their attitudes and, and whatnot, but, or, or their racism, but I'm talking about the white supremacists. See, these type of people, they ain't white supremacists. They want to be white supremacists. The real white supremacists is the Bill Clintons of the world, the Hillary Clintons of the world, the George Zolis of the world, you know, the board members. Are, well, wasn't it Third Good and Marshall? The third, I think? Yeah, Third Good. Yeah, it's that Third Good. That's his daddy was the one, the former black Supreme Court judge. Very first one. Now he sits on the board of Correction Corporation of America. Damn it. You know, so anyway, uh, I'll just leave you with this. You know, slavery is not going to end itself, and we need all abolitionists on the battle lines. Peace. Peace. All hands on deck, the man said. So I can't do nothing but second that. Uh, like like Scotty, I mean, I think we kind of went into our rants and had our moments where we, you know, got, got into it pretty deeply. So, I mean, all this information, people, you know what more can really be added? You you heard what we said, and it's the same thing we say every week. It's uh, it says Max always ends the program with it's a reason for revolution, so we can finally even know peace. So uh, I just want to see more people get active, get involved, uh, take up some kind of cause or support some kind of cause. Scotty told you about Black Talk Radio Network with the T-shirts. Uh, we've got the New Abolitionist Radio with the T-shirts. Ferguson is America. So I mean, we're trying to do campaigns while also producing the program, while also taking care of our families, while also trying to stay out the slave catcher nets. I mean, damn, <laughs> you know, get involved. There's plenty of weight. There's plenty of room on this plow. So put your shoulder to it and help us out. Peace to the abolitionists. Death to the oppressors. Shout out to uh, IWW, uh, the International Workers of the World Union. Uh, who are organizing the prisoners across, the, uh, helping to organize prisoners across the country and in Texas to strike. I think that's going to lead to something special, so keep on doing what you're doing. Um, I want to end it with a quote from Jasiri X, verbatim from his track, The New Nat Turners, when he said that 
They created corporations because they never wanted fame, so the niggas that you see is the niggas that's underpaid. A re- abolition is the reason for a revolution, so we can finally know some peace. Peace. Mm-hmm.